Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We've all been witness to the decline and fall of faith in some who once stood among us and fellowshiped with us. They went out from us, says Scripture, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be shown that they all are not of us. But when we think of them, it is honestly hard to do without some degree of grief. There are some who once sang the songs of Zion, shoulder to shoulder with us, and we considered ourselves to be one in spirit and in heart with them. And now they are deniers of the faith that they once professed. They don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in His gospel. They may not even believe in God. No faith at all. They have, in the words of Scripture, made shipwreck of their faith. What appeared to be faith, but wasn't true faith, has sunk to the bottom of the ocean and it rests there silent and asleep and lifeless now. There are others who worshiped with us who now have faith, but it is a false faith. They've turned away from the one pure gospel of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, and now consider certain external works necessary for salvation. They have taken and polluted the gospel, or they've adopted that from others. Some are today parts of cults, perhaps. Maybe they've joined another religious system that requires certain works, even though the New Testament and Galatians over and over claim that that will destroy the gospel. Their hope is now not in Christ alone, but in performance and attendance, donation, sacrifice, commitment, sacrament, priest, preacher, anything but Christ alone. Again, there are some who've been in our fellowship and they've gone on off, and today they would consider this book that they once heard with us to be an ancient book that is comprised of a mixture of echoes of divinity and truth together with broad swaths of error. And it can't be taken and trusted completely. And so they've deconstructed not only their Christian experience, but they've de deconstructed Christianity itself and the Scriptures and Christ and the triune God until there's nothing left to deconstruct. And now, they once were here with us to affirm these things, and now they affirm what Scripture clearly rejects. And they reject what Scripture clearly affirms, and then wash their mouths and say, I've done nothing wrong. Or again, there have been others who have gone out, and they've not stopped believing anything when it comes to the truths that we teach here. But they've just been swept away by the strong undercurrent of temptation. And they say they know that they should be living this way, but they're not going to. They've chosen this world like Demas, and they've departed, they've left, and they're out at sea. We remember all of these, and it's with a real grief. And you certainly have examples of people that you've known in just the same circumstances. But let me just say that it's an important practice not only in this case, but in all cases in your Christian life, not to only notice the negative and the grievous, 
but to make sure that by faith you look also at what is good. And if we were to do that, although our hearts grieve for those who have departed, many more have stayed. Anytime you look out and see a hair that's seasoned and gray of a saint who has walked with Christ for decades of his or her life, And if you were to ask them today, they could still and would still proclaim to the generation to come, God has never failed me. Christ has never failed me. The gospel has proven true in my experience year after year after year. That is just as much an encouragement as it is discouraging when we think of those who have left. They can say with the psalmist, even to old age and gray hairs, O God, don't forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. And you, they, are doing that very thing this morning by persevering in the faith. By being here year after year, you are proving the power of God to those who are younger in the faith by showing them that Christ is faithful not just for a handful of years, but is faithful over the course of a long life full of all of its trials and difficulties. This, of course, is something that concerns all of us. When we see others who go away, we want to know, am I in this for the long haul? Will I go away? Will I persevere in the faith? Our eternal destiny depends upon that. And for that reason, God has given us, by the inspiration of His Spirit, the text that we have before us today, Paul is writing to the Galatians a long time ago, but his concern is with something that deeply concerns us, persevering in the faith. Let's see this in Galatians chapter 3, starting at the beginning of that chapter. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? These Galatians were being wooed away from the gospel, if you remember, by a group we call Judaizers who were Jews who claimed to trust in Christ, but then they followed Paul, unfortunately, to every church he planted, and just behind him came in and said, it's great that you've believed in Christ. But unless you also become Jewish by being circumcised and submitting yourself to certain laws of our our law, the Mosaic law, including dietary restrictions, you can't really be saved. This is what they said in Acts chapter 15. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Notice they were not saying, we think you should be circumcised. They were saying, be circumcised or there is no salvation. That is what we call in Christian terms legalism. 
adding something beyond faith necessary for salvation. When Paul saw this among the Galatians, when he had heard that the Judaizers came in and these Galatians who had come to Christ and there was a church there and great fellowship, when they were being wooed away by the arguments of the Judaizers to think that they have to add in some kind of works to really be saved, then Paul wrote this letter we're reading now. And we saw in the first two chapters, sort of the first part of the letter of the Galatians, that Paul gave a history. That was his argument, a history, proving that his gospel of salvation by faith alone and not works came from heaven. It wasn't from the Jerusalem apostles. It's not a hand-me-down. He didn't make it up. It came from heaven. That's been the last two chapters. Now we move into the second section of this book, which is chapters 3 and four, and you can tell, even when I started this passage, things are getting very personal now. Oh, foolish Galatians! So he's been making an argument from history, proving, defending his gospel of salvation by faith alone. But now he drives the argument directly to the Galatians. And he's going to now in chapters two or chapters three and four make a variety of almost an exhausting amount, but in a good way, of arguments from the Scriptures and experience to show them salvation is by faith alone plus nothing, no matter what the Judaizers say. Because Paul sees the gospel as certain kinds of chemical compounds where if you add another chemical in, it explodes. And that's how he sees the gospel. If you try to add any work, even a good work, but you add it in as necessary for salvation, and it's not hearing with faith, it explodes. You destroy the gospel. It's not a minor matter. That's why our passage begins with that letter. Oh, oh, an expression of his emotion and of course the series of questions and you'll see all throughout chapters three and four an exasperation in Paul a desperation that the Galatians move away from the precipice they're standing on where if they take one more step toward the Judaizers they're gone their faith was not genuine that's why he says did you suffer so many things in vain if it was in vain I don't know are you going to step over the cliff or are you going to prove that it was true and persevere Chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, we'll get to eventually, and that will be at the end, the last section of the book, which has more to do with sort of ethical applications in your day-to-day life of salvation by faith alone and the Spirit. But today, he's beginning this direct argumentation by noting a shift that had happened in the Galatians. And what he wants to do as he begins his argument is take them back back to when they first trusted in Christ, long before these poisonous Judaizers slithered onto the scene, back when they were filled with the Spirit and the Spirit was working powerfully and actively among them. They were suffering persecution with joy and it was all through faith and now something changed. So we're going to divide this message into two parts in keeping with the text. And the first will be the former certainty that the Galatians once had when it came to faith in Christ. The second will be the current uncertainty that they now experienced because of the influence of the Judaizers. And my prayer is that with a passage like this, it's intended by God to help us persevere in the faith, 
to demonstrate that our faith in Christ is genuine. If you're a true child of God, you have nothing to fear. Christ will preserve you. And one of the ways he will do that is if you're wandering into any sort of addition of works, he uses a passage like this, like a shepherd's staff, reaches out, grabs you in the crook of it, and pulls you back to the fold. And may he do so with us. Any way we compromise the gospel, whether that be through false systems of belief that we wander toward, or even just in our own practice. So let's be reminded so that we too can go back to former certainty of the certainty that these Galatians experienced at first. See this in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was, that's past tense, before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Some of these terms we're going to reserve for later, like foolish and bewitched. The only thing I want to point out right now is that there was, as Paul's noting, a definite change that took place from what the Galatians were to what the Galatians are. And that's Paul's main concern. He says this is what they were. It was at that time before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, before I get into what that means, I just want to make an observation from this text at large. Since Paul is pointing back to what they were and reminding them of it, that reminds us that one of the greatest dangers that we have as Christians, one of the greatest dangers in leading us to wander away from a clear perception of the gospel in our lives is what we can call amnesia. It is a forgetting that really all of us are prone to. Because you, Christian, may have come into this place this morning quite discouraged. Maybe you've even sunk to the level of straight skepticism. You've become a sort of cynic, even of the Christian faith, and you know it's wrong, but you feel it. You're cynical about Christian fellowship, about the gospel, about life after death. You're still afraid of death. You know there are the things you should believe, but you're struggling with them. What the devil least wants you to do at this point is remember that it was not always like this with you. Do you remember when you first came to Christ? Some of you don't have a moment, that's fine. But think of earlier in your walk with Christ, you were not always the cynic that you might be this morning. I'm sure your cynicism feels so real, and it seems like it's always been this way. Maybe it's all baloney. But do you remember years ago, perhaps, or less than that, when it was anything but baloney to you? I mean, the gospel was so vivid, as if Christ was crucified in front of your very eyes. So strong was your faith when you first had that sense of forgiveness in Christ, that you, with all your sins, could have those washed away, and you had the conviction, no doubt, the conviction that that had happened. It brought you just such, perhaps, I know experiences differ, but in your case, maybe this immense sense of freedom, like a weight had been lifted off of you. And you would go to the ends of the earth to tell people about Christ. You would die for Him. Did you forget about that? Because this morning, you might feel not like that at all. What Paul is doing is saying, just remember, that was the same you. It wasn't somebody else. That was you then. There's a you now. You need to remember the you then. 
But that's what Satan doesn't want you to do. He doesn't want you to have any vivid recollection of those feelings and that experience. Because then it was so real. When the devil sees us drifting, shifting, moving away from that, what's often a sort of first fresh experience of and commitment to the gospel of God's mercy in Christ, when he sees us over time as we witness our own failures firsthand, front row seats, over and over again, and we begin to get into our penalty box, feel quite guilty about our failures, and then you forget that the gospel's for sinners like you because you're supposed to be a saint now. You're supposed to be past that and better than that. And so you start to shift from that first faith in the gospel, that vivid sense of Christ crucified before your eyes, His blood atoning your sin, and you move into this sort of moralism, this sort of get your act together. You've been a Christian X number of years. And when Satan sees you shifting there, of course, that is going to be throwing water on the fire of your zeal because just living in your guilt, that's not very encouraging or fun. And as you're doing that, Satan does not want you to cast a glance backward because Satan wants you to be convinced that this nominal, small experience of Christ you're having now that's dull and lifeless, that's all there is to Christianity. But see, if we could get a time machine, which I recognize not possible, I'm sure, a physicist could tell me. But if we could do that and you could take yourself from years ago and bring you to yourself, you would be the best argument against that argument. But that's what Satan doesn't want you to do. He wants you to think, he wants you to have amnesia and to simply forget all the good experiences you've had in fellowship, all the rich experiences you've had in God's Word. You, you've had those, remember? All of the joys you've had in just perceiving the gospel, the times where you did have a rich prayer, you did enjoy worship. He wants you to forget all of that. Say, no, 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 no. You just need to try hard. And if you don't do well, you're a failure. Live in your guilt. So that's the first observation here. As Paul is really in this whole text, it's a series of questions that are coming up, but he's trying to push the Galatians back to their first experience of Christ. We'll see that in the questions as well. Now notice the way he presents this, them to, to try to get rid of their amnesia in our text is, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And I want to tell you a joy and a mystery here. Some of us feel that if we could have just been there when Christ was crucified and seen him resurrected and with doubting Thomas put our fingers in the wounds, then of course we'd believe and not feel doubt. If like Paul we could be thrown up into the third heaven, then who would doubt? Of course you'd die. You'd have your head cut off like Paul because you already went to heaven. The Galatians almost certainly had not seen Christ be crucified. So well, how is that possible? It says it was before their very eyes. Look, they were not evangelized till later. There is the slight possibility that some of the Jewish people who had come to Christ there in Galatia, which was not all of them, but some of the Jewish people may have been in Jerusalem at the Passover when Christ was crucified. Maybe some of them walked by and saw Jesus. But the way he's presenting this is not just like that group who are Jewish who may have been there, but it's your eyes, all of you. They were not there. They did not with their physical eyes see him. 
So how can he say that? He could say that to you right now, and it would be true. It was through the preaching of Christ crucified that, so to speak, Christ crucified was set before their eyes. He was, as it says here, publicly portrayed, and that word in the original could almost mean placarded. Christ and what he has done and his death on the cross was set as a big banner right in front of your eyes when you heard the preaching of the gospel. When Paul and his companions first came to Galatia, brought them the gospel, preached the gospel, they, as we'll see, heard it with faith and it was before the eyes of their heart. But it was such a vivid thing for them that he can put it this way, it was before your eyes. Now this idea of Christ crucified we get further confirmation of this view of things because when Paul talks about how he preaches, that's what he preaches. In fact, sometimes he says he doesn't preach anything else. He told the Corinthian Christians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then a chapter before that to the Corinthians, he made it clear that this was his regular practice. He said, we preach, what do we preach? Christ crucified. So how did they see Christ crucified? By the preaching of Christ crucified right in front of them like a banner before the eyes of their heart to witness Christ crucified by hearing with faith. It is shocking, I admit, that he says it this way. It was before your eyes. Why say it that way if it wasn't literally before their physical eyes that this happened? I think it's to draw emphasis to the vividness of what happened then. Do you remember for yourself? when you first heard the gospel or when it first came home to you, it was as if you were taken by faith to Calvary. As if you knelt before the cross, you watched the blood trickle down the beam of the cross, puddle on the ground, cleansing you of your sin. It's as if you could look up and see Christ's pity. Some of you, sure, have less vivid imaginations. That's not required to be a Christian necessarily. But there's still this experience we have where we really believe that the cross has Christ upon it for us. And it's as if we see it. That's what he's trying to remind them of. Now, we use this kind of language all the time, so it's not a stretch. For example, if you had a friend trying to explain to you what cryptocurrency is, and they're explaining it, and finally you go, oh, I see. What do you see? Can you even see cryptocurrency? Not technically. So what do you see? Why would you say see if you're not seeing anything? You're just talking. He's just talking, and now you see. Ah, oh, you see? That's what's going on in our passage right now. As if before your very eyes, this was explained to you by Paul. Christ crucified in the place of sinners, and they at first saw that. They heard it, technically he'll say, by faith. It's as if they saw it. When you say hindsight is twenty twenty, again, it's just understanding. We're not talking about actually seeing. But we use that language. He's using that language. It means they got it. You can see there in verse 2, he'll say they receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. That's what he's talking about here. And that's sensible because for the Christian, we walk by faith and not by sight. Really, faith is our sight more than sight is. Have you seen Christ crucified? 
You know he was crucified, sure. Just like you know there's such a thing as cryptocurrency, sure. Have you seen Christ crucified? Are you among the number of Galatian believers where Paul can say, with your own eyes, you saw Christ crucified? There's a sense in which every person in this room has and I hope that I am innocent of the blood of old persons because I have presented here quite regularly from the pulpit the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I hope no one can say, oh, that's news to me. We talk about that often. I present in the text publicly portray Christ. You are in the same position as the Galatians. They hadn't seen it with their eyes. You haven't seen Him crucified with your eyes, but have you seen Him? If you've not seen him, then the call is this morning, see him. It's look. Do you see how even the image of seeing is meant to emphasize for you that salvation is by faith and not by works? Because as the old preacher who helped lead the famous Charles Spurgeon to Christ said, in some cockney accent that I can't imitate, look to Christ. Looking is not doing. Looking is not walking. What is looking? Looking is just looking. So look to Christ. That's the picture here. Week after week, Christ is publicly presented to you. And yet, still, there has to be this appeal. I can put him here and you can close your eyes. I can put him here and you can harden your heart. I can put him here and you can turn away to sin instead. But look, I'm putting him here. So look to him. Like the bronze serpent raised in the wilderness, every Israelite bitten by a poisonous asp, if they looked at that serpent, they were spared. It's the same for you. So Christ has been raised. So you can do if you look. We sing it, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There is light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. This was the kind of certainty about the gospel of Christ crucified that the Galatians experienced at first. And then the Judaizers came. And that moves us now to the second part of this message, which is away from the certainty of Christ publicly portrayed and seeing him now to a uncertainty. To convince them of this change that had taken place, Paul presents to them several questions. And you'll notice he begins in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. And you'll notice the only is followed by five questions. (laughs) The only isn't meant as just one question. The only is to focus their attention because although it's five questions, they're all making exactly the same point. He just wants them to see one thing, even if he adds up his questions, to press them to see it. He wants them to see things have not always been this way, that there has been a change on their part from the glorious early experiences when they heard salvation by faith alone under Paul to the uncertainty and danger now that they're being wooed by the Judaizers. There is just this. One argument in verses 2 through 5. See it with me. Here are the five questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun back then by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, two of these questions are really just Paul's way of grabbing the Galatians by the shoulders and shaking them. He says, are you so foolish? How do you answer a question like that? It's just meant to shake them. And even this question, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain, is just to shake them and say, listen, I'm convinced of better things for you, but... If you follow the Judaizers off that cliff, you prove your faith was never genuine. You suffered. You were persecuted. All of this in vain. So it's just to shake them. But the other three questions contain the gist of his argument. And it's this. Before the Judaizers showed up, all of your spiritual joys, benefits, and experiences were received by you to the full without the law. So why do you now think, once the Judaizers are here, that you need the law to fully experience the benefits of Christ? Look back then. Look at yourself now. Something's changed, and it's not for the better. That's what he's trying to convince them of here. So, for example, when Christ was set before them through preaching, he says they received the Spirit. Now, that's true of every believer, every genuine believer, but there was also something unique happening in the early days of the church. You remember it when Peter, that great apostle, first came to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius, a Gentile, with a house full of Gentiles, and Peter, shockingly as a Jew, violates his own social customs, goes into his house because the Spirit indicated go into his house, and he preaches the gospel to non-Jews who are not practicing kosher dietary restrictions and who are not circumcised, who are not keepers of the law. And Peter went into that house of Cornelius, preached to them the gospel. The last phrase, the last sentence that Peter told them in that account in Acts 10 is this, To him, Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, and he's thinking Jew, Gentile, Jew, Gentile, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then what happened? The Holy Spirit fell upon Gentiles, all the Gentiles in that house, not Jewish, not keeping the law. What happened? But they received the Holy Spirit, and to make it very obvious, the Holy Spirit had them speak in tongues, just like the Jews did on the day of Pentecost, which was a demonstration they've received the Spirit. And Paul, or Peter, and his Jewish companions looked and went, oh, can't argue with that. They received the Spirit just like us. Now, how did these Gentiles receive the Spirit in Cornelius' house? What did they do? Was it the laying on of hands? Was it, did they perform a ritual? Did they pray a certain prayer? What did they do to receive the greatest gift of all time, the Holy Spirit? Here's what Luke writes in Acts 10. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
Peter said, all who believe receive forgiveness. He said Christ crucified. The Gentiles in Cornelius' house heard, without moving, maybe fidgeting, but they're just sitting, they're standing or sitting, and they're hearing it. And while that happened, with nothing else happening, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And Paul, Peter, Paul, in our case, is making a similar point to the Galatians. Their experience may have been different. They may not have spoken in tongues. It's hard to know in the early church exactly what was happening there. But regardless, they received the Spirit. That is clear. How? Just like those in Cornelius' house. Could you imagine if at Cornelius' house, Peter comes in and he preaches the gospel, and if you believe in Jesus Christ crucified, you'll be forgiven for your sins. And the Gentiles, so excited, go, hold up. And they run to their cupboards, and they open them. They pull out all the salted pork, and they pull out all the crawfish. They pull out everything forbidden in the Old Testament law that was not allowed for God's people. They pull it all out. They throw it out of their house. They quickly have a circumcision session, as unpleasant as that is. And then they go to the temple and do ritual purification. And they rush back to Peter. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. Is that what happened? They heard. That's what they did. They heard Christ crucified. That's it. And hearing, literally while they heard, they received the Holy Spirit. But now the Judaizers come to the Galatians who had just the same experience and say, oh, that's all great, yep. But if you really want to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. Paul says, you weren't circumcised when you were saved. You were already saved. The Spirit, you received the Spirit with pork in your cabinets, circumcised. And it happened, and you knew it happened, and you were enlightened, and you suffered persecution, you didn't care, and you were excited, and the Spirit filled you. Maybe they spoke in tongues at that point, but clearly the Spirit was there. You received Him, and listen, no circumcision, no dietary restrictions, and it just went on that way for a long time. So now, how could you possibly, who's bewitched you? Where's the dark magic? How could you possibly think that to be saved, you need to keep the law. You were saved without the law already. That's Paul's argument here. Hearing by faith, not works of the law. How could you be confused when you literally were there? You experienced it. Again, verse 3, he says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So at the first, they believed in Christ. That was enough. They received the Spirit. They begun their Christian life as Gentiles by the Spirit, not by works of the law, still being Gentiles. That's how they started. So maybe the Judaizers' argument then is, hey, great that you did that back then. Awesome. But listen, if you want to be like a real Christian, like full Christian, like totally included, confident of eternal life, knowing where you're going where you, when you die. If you want that to happen, there is a completion that needs to take place. You've made a good start, faith in Christ. But you need to now add these certain external, that's what he means by the flesh, outward, certain external requirements common to the Jewish people. And that will bring to completion what you've started. 
It is a little bit in some ways like uh, maybe a Roman Catholic doctrine where you have an infusion of grace and your baptism is going to help you here and then the sacraments are going to help with that and you've got to keep working at it to get a bit like that. Good start by the Spirit, wonderful, but now there are external, in the flesh things you need to do. And Paul says that's just inconsistent. When you started by the Spirit, you didn't lack anything. You didn't lack anything. You didn't need anything. And your life's not any better now, I promise, that you're leaning toward the Judaizers. What's better about your life there now? What? That the Jewish people are no longer eating with the Gentiles, so you've ripped the church in half. Wow, that is great. We're bringing things to completion. <laughs> this is really wonderful. No, you started by the Spirit. Remember the good old days of joy when there was no Judaizer and no law required for salvation. Go back to that. You started there. You're not going to now be completed by external in-the-flesh activities. It's still by the Spirit. You start by the Spirit, you end by the Spirit. You start by faith, you end by faith. It's consistent. God doesn't change His mind how you're going to do this. In this age, it's Spirit from beginning to end, not flesh. And this final question, verse 5, sort of supports that. Does He, and this is referring to God, who supplies the Spirit to you, now we're in the present tense, and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. And it's a similar point. What are you lacking that you need the law now? Literally, and especially this was prominent in the early church, not as prominent today, but in the early church, very common that many remarkable miracles would take place at the hands of the apostles and others in the church. In fact, some people were gifted in the early church with the gift of miracles, which I assume means that they could somewhat regularly do miracles. Others were gifted with the gift of healings. You can heal people. God was confirming His testimony in the new age by these remarkable happenings, and those things were happening among the Galatian believers before the Judaizers were even on the horizon, long before they came. They ate pork during the day, and at night they healed people. Was it that God, on a day when these Gentile Christians ate pork, said, I'm not doing miracles today. Put that away. Was it only circumcised Christians among the Galatians who could work miracles? No. It was not by works of the law. That had no bearing on it. And Paul's just saying, look at your own experience. God made no distinction between those who were Jewish, those who were not Jewish, those who were circumcised, not circumcised, kept the dietary law, didn't. You notice how the Holy Spirit fell on everyone. Everyone was involved in doing miracles and tongues and whatever was happening at that point. It was not in response to law-keeping. It was not. That's the point that Paul is making for them. He said, it's not for you to do a miracle of healing someone who is sick. Did you have to go into your closet and first clear out all the clothes made of two kinds of different material, which was forbidden under Old Testament law? He said, no, you never did that. You just believed, had the Spirit, did the miracle. You don't need the law, and God does not specifically just work actively. The Spirit is not just actively working among those who keep the law. Paul was fine with Jewish Christians who wanted to keep aspects of the law. No problem. 
he kept them sometimes himself. The problem was requiring them or making a distinction between those who didn't and those who did. Saved without it, grew without it, joy without it, all without the law. Then the Judaizers say, you need it. And Paul says, how? How could that be possible? They could only be tempted because they had forgotten. And that is the point, like in verse 1, when he says, oh, foolish Galatians. Not just like, oops, you forgot, but that's moral culpability. Like, you had the gospel, it is your fault that you're losing it. You need to remember where you've fallen from. Paul is so surprised, that's why he says, who has bewitched you? He says, surely, these questions are so logical that the only way I can imagine that you're shifting away from salvation by faith alone is if someone has conjured up dark magic to lead you away in deceit. Because this can't be something that you really thought was logical yourself. Sadly, though, it doesn't take any dark magic, and you know that we ourselves are not immune to this drifting. It's true of us, where we do begin our faith in Christ focused on the Holy Spirit, so excited about Him, but as time passes, even without the help of Judaizers, Satan always has his workers, and even temptations we find within ourselves that call into question, yeah, the gospel's true, but you can't really be like a legit full Christian, right? Like, you've got to be missing something. When you get your prayer time down, and you can pray, Jesus said, you can't pray with me one hour? Listen, when you can even pray a half hour, okay? When you can pray a half hour, that's when you're really a legit Christian. So you go get your act together, start praying at least half of an hour a day, and then come back here and try to serve in the church, you know? Then try to be a real legit Christian. In other words, you're just believing in Christ? That's not enough right now. You need to add something. Sure, for us, it's not so much circumcision and dietary restrictions, but we make our own poisons. We can pick our own additions to faith, and there are a whole variety of moral issues, how you dress, how you educate your children, you name it. And these become markers, and if you reach them, they're all external, and if you do them, then you're a legit Christian. But if you think that you can read the Bible, and you sinned yesterday, and you think you can read the gospel and go, oh. God, thank you for forgiving all my sins. You're making grace cheap. No, no, no. Get your sins taken care of first. You deal with that first. You stop looking at that first. Then you can come and enjoy the gospel, but not until you do that. You see what you've done? You've forgotten that when you first came to Christ, you were still, as a Christian, committing sins that would today make you blush. And... We're believing the gospel completely, and we're rejoicing. The people around you looked at you kind of odd. You don't know cussing's a sin yet. Maybe somebody should tell you that. And yet at that point, hearing by faith, you received it. And now you sin less than you did then, and you believe the gospel applies less than it did then. Paul says, remember, remember, you were saved. You began by the Spirit, faith, that's it. Don't try to add some requirement to that. Should we be holy? Of course we should. But to add that in as necessary for you to finally commune with God and be a real legit Christian like the people around you is not right. You add that to salvation by faith alone and you will blow it up. You can honor God today by distrusting and simply disbelieving all the loud doubts that you have in your head 
that God simply will not and cannot receive you just as you are right now because blank. You say, I've heard the gospel with faith. Well, then, if you've heard the gospel with faith, you are as saved as you can ever be. Rest in that. That's absolutely true. If you have looked to the serpent on the pole, if you have looked to Christ, just looking and not doing, then today you are saved and innocent.